Hi, and thanks for tuning in to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week, we feature an interesting, thought-provoking and clinically relevant conversation to enhance your speech pathology practice. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Welcome to Speak Up. I begin by acknowledging Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the traditional custodians of the lands, seas, and waters throughout Australia. I pay respect to elders past, present, and emerging, and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Hello, my name is Nathan Cornish Rayleigh, and I'm speaking to you today from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Today, we're going to be talking about translanguaging, and I wanted to acknowledge my positionality as it's relevant to this topic. I am a white cisgender male who is a native speaker of English and had the privilege of learning and communicating in Spanish whilst living in Mexico. I migrated to Australia from the United States, and I recognize that my lived experience and language use in both countries is tied to a lot of systems of privilege that stem from colonialism. I use frameworks like uh, disability critical race theory or DISCRIT to help me understand how to support justice equity and inclusion in my practice and in the profession. And I have really been looking forward to speaking with our guests in the United States today about this topic. So I'm joined by Dr. Maria Rosa Breaspan, who is a clinical associate professor and director of the bilingual extension track at New York University. And Dr. Sigrid Soto Boykin, who is an assistant research professor and Senior Scientist for Bilingual Learning at Arizona State University. So to get us started, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about yourselves and the work that you do and what your positionality is as we enter into this conversation today. I'll, I'll jump in. So um, in terms of my positionality around language, I am a native Spanish speaker. I learned English or I learned Spanish in Puerto Rico, where I'm from, and the Spanish spoken in Puerto Rico is typically minoritized and racialized in the way that we are perceived to speak a less um, academic or professional Spanish, yet it's the Spanish of Bad Bunny and the Spanish of reggaeton and entertainment. So there's a duality of being perceived as not so proficient and yet pretty cool. So I come in with that part of my identity. I learned English in the United States when I was 11 years old. And at that moment, I was placed in a English-only classroom and basically forced to assimilate without the support of um, an English as a second language teacher. So I made it my mission to learn English, and I did. But what happened was that I, I did that at the expense of my heritage Spanish and I tried my best to assimilate and what happened was that I I started associating my sense of worth with how well I spoke English and to the extent that people perceived me as accented. I also acknowledge that I'm not disabled and my primary way of languaging is just spoken language and other modalities, but as a person that doesn't have a communication impairment working in speech language therapy, I do think that I am in the process of undoing a lot of ableist perspectives of what is valuable language, what is valuable communication. And that's why I think I'm really excited to talk about translanguaging with one of my favorites today, Dr. Bayes Pond, because it's helping me like understand my own positionality in language, but also how we can bring that to our work. 
and I'm equally excited to be sharing the space. My name is Maria Rosa, and that is not truncated Maria, it's Maria Rosa, although my history is such that I was born and raised in the Dominican Republic in Santo Domingo until the age of 17. I grew up in a family where multilingualism was actually the norm, as it is in the world, <laughs> um, but we failed to acknowledge it. Um, and because my grandmother was an immigrant from Italy, my mother spoke, uh, I think she speaks about five languages, all rooted in Romance, uh, tongues, Latin, right? Um, and my father spoke Italian and Spanish because he did part of his education in Florence, Italy. Um, all that said, I grew up uh, learning, dreaming, speaking, reading, writing, um, all in Espanol Dominicano. And yet in that context, it's important to say that I am racialized as a white Latina coming into this space, that I am a cisgendered woman, um, also heterosexual. So there's a lot of privileges that I hold and that I came from a family that as multilingualism was also centered. So there was this notion of what class meant as it related to power and as it related through the proxy of language, meaning that at the age of 10, my father was the very first person to introduce me to the idea of a vernacular, quote unquote, versus a, an, a, 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 a literate form of expressing oneself as a, as a proxy for getting access to a certain position within society. He told me, as a woman, be sure that you close your syllables in Espanol Dominicano, in which we tend to kind of get going and truncate, um, because that is, a, as a woman, you'll be judged more harshly within these spaces. So we're talking about the age of 10, the age of 11, kind of already understanding that language had a means for uh, uh, enforcing power, but also acquiring power through it. So that's not to be lost, right? That that passed and then sort of the transformation that happened within my own identities coming into the United States in my senior year of high school, not speaking English, because although I was born and raised in this family that spoke many languages, languages that were not Spanish were used to tell secrets or to uh, exclude me as the child, right? Exclude us as a child. Not in, in, you know, and that's not something that I necessarily hold as a grudge against my parents. It's just the way things were there. Espanol is what was needed to survive there and to belong there. Um, and so coming to the United States after much sacrifice by both of my parents, I did come in documented. So that's another piece of privilege that is often not centered in our field. Um, this idea of what documentation does for the person coming into uh, these spaces, these educational spaces, but I was immediately, just like Sigrid um, Sotomoykin um, talked about, tested uh, and determined to be non-English speaking, as does placed in an ESOL class that was a Pulak class, uh, and, and expected to immerse myself in my senior year of high school, meaning that I only had how many months to learn English and to then graduate successfully from that space. Um, Important to say that because when I entered the United States, then I immediately became the other. Okay. And like uh, Dr. Soto Boykin mentioned, we both have made a choice to come into a field in which uh, the main intersection is disability 
And that is that is an intersection that I did not critically analyze with him. The, the, the language piece, yes, because we've been through the racialization process of being an immigrant in a space, right? So coming into this space today, talking about translanguaging, we're coming in it in some ways as insiders, right? Knowing what it was like to be racialized as a result of our languaging, as a result of our accentedness or perceived accentedness. People make comments about my accent. People make comments about my father's language, which, you know, in his case and in his defense, he resisted learning English up until he passed away in 2011. So all this to say that we come into this space of disability as outsiders, knowing in that, that I also carry, again, the tremendous uh, privilege of also being racialized white as race as a social construct. I live in New York City too, by the way, so there might be noises. It's <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you. Yeah, and thank you both for talking about you know the, the your positionality and the lens that you're bringing to this conversation today. And we've had some interesting conversations um, on Speech Pathology Australia's online community about positionality statements and considerations around making them. I do want to get to translanguaging, but I wonder if first you could share your perspective on positionality statements and the importance of, you know, talking about the lens that we bring to conversations like this. I can start with that. I think that I can imagine that some of the conversations without knowing exactly, but some conversations that I've had in a space that are really my job, not only focuses on bilingualism, but just larger concepts around equity, people uh, struggle sometimes because there's an assumption that making a positional positionality statement alone is going to change practice and becoming you know, less biased, less racist, etc. And I think that whenever we say, we think that just by stating something without being critical, reflective, um, with a big commitment to really learning and unlearning, uh, ways that we can be harmful and propagate deficit ideologies. I do think that having a positionality positional statement alone, is, it's problematic and not really getting to the goals that people envision these statements to make. So I don't feel like we should just say things like that without the work um, that it entails to really be aware of who you are, how that positions you in this world, and knowing that positionality is not stagnant, but it changes depending on on where we are, right? So for example, right now, um, whoever is hearing this podcast is probably hearing two uh, scholars who are Latina, but we are researchers and there's doctors in front of our names. So we might be positioned as holders of knowledge. Well, at least for myself, sometimes I'm in spaces where I'm not believed as an expert because of the way that I speak. Uh, because of the way that I'm perceived. Um, and yet in other contexts, being Puerto Rican, having that privilege of being a born citizen of the United States, I might go into a community where there's undocumented families and I carry a lot of privilege. I'm perceived like um, with a lot of esteem in a place like that and a lot of respect, not because I'm better than another person, but just because the, this idea of positionality is... is it's tied to our social contract. So I guess what I'm trying to say, it's like, we can't just make statements about positionality without really doing that reflective ongoing work um, that it takes to move the field in different ways. 
Well, and talking about how our own identities and experiences interact in different spaces is probably a good seg into discussing how we support people whose identities and experiences and forms of communication can be minoritized. And perhaps a good place to start digging into this topic of translanguaging is by talking about how we often view multilingualism. So could you talk a bit about how speech pathologists usually define bilingualism? I'm happy to jump in. Um, As somebody who defined bilingualism in that way, in the way in which is the mainstream um, in our field and the uncritical way, which is the mainstream in our, in our field. So, you know, again, and this is where positionality too is important because we are both Dr. Soto, Boykin and myself are in the United States. And there is a certain stance about language in the United States, but specifically about multilingual languaging, right, in the United States. This idea of language being a a practice that centers a specific named language, meaning a specific language that is tied to a state, nation state. So the first thing to say in that space is that when we think about bilingualism in the field of speech language pathology, words that I grew up with listening once I started in the master's and then PhD program um, are words like early or late learner, okay? Are words like fluent or emerging in proficiency, are words like sequential and simultaneous, and are words like basic interpersonal, right? Communicative skills and cognitive academic language proficiency, which the, the beginning of the genesis of those words was not necessarily to explain bilingualism, but over time they have been adopted. Those particular, the last two terms, right? Have been adopted. So when we talk about bilingualism, we make the effort to say in speech language pathology, a bilingual is not two monolinguals in one. And yet we are treated if, or we are treating those people that we are quote unquote studying, teaching, engaging with as if they were two monolinguals in one. To give you an example, what is the first rule of assessment when it comes to a bilingual child? It is that you have to test in both languages. I'm not saying that that's not the case, that it shouldn't be done in that way. I think we have to problematize assessment to begin with, but we won't go there in this conversation, right? But the whole idea of testing a person into languages in what ways and by what means and what are the expectations within that assessment process? Because if Maria Rosa were given a test about speech language pathology in Espanol, when that has not been the language in which I have grown up becoming an SLP, right? Then how am I to prove that I am fluent enough that my whatever the case may be in that moment may be due to a difference, quote unquote, between my two languages, when the method and the means and the expectation of that assessment process is one of equal fluency. So for me, 
that was the the initial uh, the entry point into a lot of the work that I did and a lot of the ways in which I sort of ha was in this point of tension of how do I define myself as a bilingual, right in that space because that's the other thing as here in this in this room as bilingual researchers and scholars we are disconnected we are we are what is called ontologically separate from the subjects that we are describing even though the subjects that we are describing is also the are also the subjects that we are right in this particular context and so the point that i'm making is that for the longest time we hear this no two monolinguals in one but we actually are doing the exact opposite that it wasn't until I want to say maybe 2008, 2009, that I encounter research by Kathy Conert, and that for the very first time I'm exposed to this concept of needs-based bilingualism, functional, a functional description of languages, which actually is the closest that I have ever encountered to what I'm learning about now which is language is in the body, language moves with us, and so does our bilingualism. And it is not only about mobility, but it is also about co-construction. So in this space, I am mostly speaking in English with the incredible freedom of bringing in words in Espanol that both of the people in this room and maybe some of our listeners are also understanding. But to also understand that that's not the case, Nate mentioned colonialism at the beginning of this particular podcast as part of the introductory bit. And I think it is important to understand that language and the concept of languages are a colonial construct, okay? And so to that end, SLP as a field, as a discipline has been uncritically borrowing what the definitions are of multiple languages in a bilingual brain, only including the interaction of those under the context of code switching. So we're allowed to code switch in some, in some settings. And when we do it in other settings, then it is encountered to be potentially described as interference. So there's a lot of little pieces that we have to kind of untangle here right is what but we have to start at what the idea the belief the ideology of language is to begin with before we even get to describing what bilingualism is and yet that's where we are and you know so that's how i see bilingualism i think you did as always for a fun fact for our listeners dr Bearspawn was my professor my only latina professor ever in my entire uh undergrad Masters and PhDs. I promised myself, here's where I cry. I'm very grateful for Dr. Bray Spawn. As you're listening to her, you already know why I love her. Um, so I think she did an amazing job um, talking about how we define bilingualism. Wow, I didn't realize that you had been a student of Dr. Bray Spawn. Um, I'm glad to have this full circle moment here on the podcast and that you have this ongoing collaboration as colleagues. You know, in both of your comments, it's clear that the languages you speak have been prioritized or held different social status or power in different contexts. But I've also been struck by how this occurs within a language or variation of a language. 
Um, I, I really appreciate um, your point, Nate. I think one of the main things um, in really thinking about our traditional definitions of bilingualism is that we assume that it's color, color evasive, right? We assume that this language, named languages, and when we say named languages, we mean traditional things that we consider a language, like French and English and Spanish, is that we forget that language happens in our bodies, and there's an interaction between the speaker and the listener. We call that like a listening subject. And in terms of when bilingualism is valued in our society, it has to do with who is the speaker and who is the listener. So sometimes we are always, we've defined bilingualism from the perspective of a white monolingual listening subject. And so when we look to your point, Nate, about different English varieties and what's esteemed as a quote unquote proper or desirable English, um, we're really considering um, from a colonial perspective, right? The English spoken in the United States by white monolinguals from middle to upper class. And we can extend that to other countries like England and Australia. So, you know, I personally feel like it's wonderful that I am bilingual, but my bilingualism is not oftentimes seen as valuable. It's seen sometimes as something to fix. So when I started my um, speech language pathology master's program, my first encounter with a um, professor was that she wanted me to do accent reduction because she didn't feel like I could be a good speech language therapist because of how I spoke. And so again, when we define bilingualism in such a narrow perspective, we really do cause a lot of harm to individuals and kind of thinking about what are the harms of defining bilingualism as we are right now, predominantly in the field of speech language pathology, but also across other disciplines like education and psychology. I think that um, a really tangible effect of that is that we see that we are oftentimes seeing children who are we call racialized immersion bilingual. So we want to be really specific about it's not just any bilingual, it's a bilingual and really we mean multilingual child who is racialized, right, because of how they speak. So they might be Black, they might be Latin, white, they might be Indigenous, they might be Asian, another person of color, but they're racialized um, because they're being compared to a white monolingual norm. And so in terms of what the harm is, we see an overrepresentation of children um, that are emergent bilinguals in special education, at least in the United States. Um, we also see this idea of being like a semi-lingual, like almost like you're never good enough to be um, a speaker of either language. So you're constantly labeled as an English learner and you remained an English learner most of your life, if not all of your life. And so for someone like me who I grew up in a, a low income community, so I always envision education as my ticket away from the community that I lived in. And that's why I really made a concerted effort to learn English because I quickly learned in the United States, you have to learn English to be considered successful. And what's really sad is that I was able to achieve that. But what it did to me is that it really um, caused a lot of harm to my sense of who I was and being proud of who I was. And I felt like I needed to die in order to succeed. And that's actually extremely painful. And it's um, it's something that we don't think about in terms of what is the material harm. But um, 
I do think it's quite impactful for the for what we're saying is valuable. Like if you're telling somebody like the way you speak, which is so inherent to who you are, is not valuable. I mean, what does that do to you as an individual? It makes you feel like you're never valuable. It doesn't matter how many degrees you get and whatever, right? Like you're just never good enough. Um, so I think that's a problem. And I think finally, we think that bilingualism requires some kind of superpower. And we say that in a, we mean it kindly. In fact, if you look at my website that I have to um, upgrade, so I'm not going to tell you what it is. Um, it says bilingualism is a superpower because I wanted to teach that to little kids. Like, it's great that you're bilingual, but we're also assuming that it requires some beyond like cognitive levels that aren't true, right? Like half of the world is bilingual. So you can have a disability and be bilingual. You don't need to have some kind of cognitive superpower. Your bilingualism is who you are. It's not some sort of award for being good enough, right? And so I think that's some examples of the harms that are imposed when we define bilingualism in the way that we do. And that's why uh, Dr. Brace Fon and I and others are so passionate about bringing forth this concept of translanguaging to the field. Mm. And before we move, because I think Nate, you mentioned something about this idea of ranking languages, mm. which is any kind of form of any form of ranking, right? It's also part of the colonial machinery that is very much coloniality that is very much alive and well. But it made me think a lot about the fact that is it this this ranking happens. Um, not just in English or the Englishes, that it happens across Latin America too with the Españoles and that it is absolutely completely related to the little story that I told you at the beginning when my dad told me, if you want to learn, if you want to be positioned and respected as a woman, you have to make sure you close your syllables, which is distancing ourselves and our languaging from blackness. So it tends to be that those languages, named languages, if we want to use the terminology dialects that are positioned as less than whatever it is that is considered a standardized version of it, are closer to its African roots, its indigenous roots than any other languages. And I, to, I have to say that this is not my knowledge. This is knowledge that I've learned from reading people like Carmen Kennard, right? That read vernacular wrote vernacular insurrections. Iris Clemens, um, who does research on Dominican Españoles too and their proximity to blackness. Tasha Austin, who does work on langu language imperialism. Um, she has an amazing paper on it, working with pre-service teachers. And those are all black women. Yes. And in our discussions, you also mentioned Warda Farah, a black speech pathologist in the UK, and her work on liberatory languaging and practice. Right. And so the importance of also centering in this conversation that we are having within our field, the understanding that none of the work that we are doing and none of the work that we will be doing to transform the field can happen without centering the voices of those people who are t usually at the margins. The ha there are marginalized by a system of publication that is also colonized. And then the last thing in, in mentioning that this ranking doesn't happen without positioning that white perceiving subject at the center, white non-disabled perceiving subject at the center, right? And that terminology given to us by Nelson Flores and Jonathan Rosa in their, um, I think it was 2016 paper, but it could have been even earlier than that, um, 
right? Was it earlier than that? 2010? 2015. 2015. Okay, I almost got it. Um, so, you know, kind of like centering the voices of the scholars too, who are usually, whose work are you, works are usually appropriated and co-opted and then republished in a way that is very surface level, which is kind of what we've seen too in our field over the last, you know, year, which is why this episode is so important to kind of like talk about really what translanguaging is and how we can get there without really kind of disentangling what we think about language, what we think about how languages are ranked and what we think about disability, right? Like those three have to be disentangled before we even get to the space of talking about bilingualism and then translanguaging. Thank you both for sharing some of these vulnerable moments where a named language or variation of that language has been centered in a way that was really difficult and served to other or minoritize you. As you were talking, I recalled conversations that I've had with parents of children that I was providing services to and who had the need to communicate at home in a language other than English. And Sometimes these kids would experience language loss as they acquired English, which happens for a variety of reasons, but you would get the sense that they had felt othered or minoritized and that the perceived lower status of the language use at home was really accelerating some of that language loss. And, you know, these conversations were often tearful where parents would say that they felt they were losing the ability to communicate with their child and, you know, given what you said about our language living in our body, I can only imagine the feelings it brings up when your child doesn't feel valued languaging in the way um, that you do, or, or maybe even begins to reject it. And I suspect that translanguaging can be a way to support people, which leads us to the big question. So can you tell us about what translanguaging is? Yeah, so the way I, I think about it, um, you know, very like I work in policy. So my job in this life is to bridge all of these amazing concepts into a concrete way, which is it's really hard. Um, but I think one way to think about it is this concept of linguist using your entire linguistic repertoire. So I imagine, for example, this is not my own idea, but Ophelia Garcia talks about having a necklace with pearls. And just to make this very simple, if you have traditionally, the way we think about bilingualism is you would have purple pearls and blue pearls. And you would really make sure you have the same level of pearls, right? And when you're in an English only environment, you're gonna choose just one color of pearls versus when you're in another environment, right? That's how we think about it. A linguistic repertoire, and I love jewelry, so this makes me very happy to think about uh, translanguaging using one of my favorite things. You think about a necklace. So we would have some purple pearls, some uh, blue pearls, and we would have a lot of pearls that are kind of marble, like they're all the colors. And we're not just speaking about named languages, but we're also thinking about gestures, pictures, Anything that really makes you you, when you think about how do I communicate, how do I language, each of us, it's not just that we speak the same languages, right? Like there's something about us that really identifies us as communicators. And when we put all those things together, then we are translanguaging. And one thing that I've realized is that it's not just 
people who are considered emergent bilinguals or bilinguals that translanguage. We all translanguage. So if you're the kind of person that loves sending uh, emojis and texting, and it might be GIFs or GIFs, depending on how you pronounce that, congratulations, you translanguage. And we also want to make sure that we don't exclude people who um who don't speak, who are non-speakers, right, of name languages. So people that may use an AAC system and vocalizations are still translanguaging. So it's just this idea that we don't separate the languages and we don't focus only on um, name spoken languages, but we bring our entire selves, our entire linguistic repertoire into how we define how we language, how we engage in communication. So translanguaging is both a stance, okay, so like sort of a, a space in which you step into that is political in nature, right, as well as a pedagogy. So we'll, the pedagogical piece is sort of that space that you're talking about, this idea of like making sure that there's um, the, 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 the vision that culturally sustaining pedagogies had of linguistic pluralism in the classroom when in the case of a therapy room in the, in the therapy room, right? Um, this idea that everybody has language and we want to be sure that we create an atmosphere of, um, we co-create an atmosphere in which those languages are useful and are used within the classroom. Then the idea of name languages going beyond the idea that I have these structures in my head somewhere that are in one locus center, but I can know what a word is in this language, I can know what a word is in this language. It goes beyond that. It's this idea of transcendence. And it is a political space. To With that said, there are some important considerations. Because when we think about translanguaging, who has the right to translanguage? is defined sometimes by policies and, and people in power and uh, a linguistic uh, standardization, a language that is stronger than all the others, right? Like that's the one that's positioned as hard. But beyond that, think about indigenous languages. Think about Urdu. Are those languages allowed in certain spaces? So this idea of transcendence, this idea, this political space, which brings tension, okay? Um, of being able to go across not only the languages as we understand them spoken, okay, because that's the other thing. We also think that language as standardized is only spoken and is we only hear it and we speak it and we write it and we read it. You are, language is an action in the body. And so when you sign your languaging, when you are using gestures, your languaging, when you're using emojis, sometimes I think in emojis, your languaging. Right, so this idea of transcendence across those modalities too is also centered under the construct or the stance of translanguaging. That's the, that's the definition of the word itself. So can you talk a bit about how a speech pathologist can incorporate a translanguaging stance in their practice? Yeah, so of course, I think we still have to do a lot of freedom dreaming about what this actually would look like in the field. But in terms of like what we can do tomorrow um, versus what is a long-term plan, I believe that one of the things that we can do is decenter English from our therapy sessions and decenter this concept of spoken language, spoken in a quote-unquote normal, typical way. Um, so to give 
us an example, perhaps maybe thinking about a speech language therapist who speaks English and doesn't speak another language, um, creating spaces in the therapy room, for example, where um, let's say that a child speaks Spanish at home and English, right? That, and it's also a child who uses an AAC system. So the therapist could provide the modeling of the name language in English and use the modeling of the AAC system um, that would be presented in the ch- using the child's like name languages and linguistic repertoire and then collaborate with a community partner or a family member to provide spoken model in the home language and also use the AAC. So that's like one very simple, but I think illustrative example of how quick turns languaging look. I think another example could be um, instead of only relying on auditory language, you know, using videos and pictures, uh, both, you know, drawing a picture and things like that to help children understand. Because I think what um, Dr. Brayespan mentioned that translanguaging is a political act. And I wonder if someone was like, what? what does that even mean? I think what it means is that we're really disruptive on purpose, right? That we understand that in every room we step in, English is always the preferred language and spoken language is the preferred modality. Like that's what's, and that has a as we have already discussed, a colonial reason that it exists. So we can show up to a space and say like English is one thing, but it's not the only thing. Spoken language is one thing, but it's not the only thing. I think that's that political aspect, right? Like doing things on purpose to cause um to to kind of knock English off its pedestal on purpose, right? And so I think that those are ways that providers can have more of that centering on linguistic justice. Um, And then in terms of linguistic liberation, I don't know if we're ready for all of this, but, you know, like, why do we need to fix ours? (laughs) You know, why do we need to fix articulation? Um, Deviances, I put quotation marks when I said that, right? Like, why does the R have to be pronounced on on the same way? How come that when some people from some that that speak in English that's esteemed say something that sounds maybe different to me, you know, we think that's cute when people say aluminum, right? Um, how come I can't say it in the way that I say it? Why does it have to be a problem? Or why does it have to be a problem for somebody with a disability to say woes? Like, why can't we be like, that's cool. Let's all do that. You know, like, why, why do we have to center a certain type of ideal um, idea that no none of us can really ever meet, right? And so forcing people to fit into a box that was never meant for them only creates greater um, inequities and injustice for people. Yeah. Can you tell us more about that? Like, how does translanguaging align with inclusion and linguistic liberation? I mean, it's at the core, right? So if you think about the, the fact that everybody has... Um, tools, for lack of a better word, tools to our our languaging that we use and that those tools may change from day to day. Like the day that I feel very tired is the day that I might want to center ways of languaging that involve photography, for example, instead of me having to produce 
spoken language all the time. But I think what you're getting at is precisely this idea at the center of the stance, that is, if we are transcending what our original construed um, ideas of language are, then think about the notion of disability and center that in the idea of translanguaging. Then with that there means that every single one of us has variability as a feature in who we are, in how, how we language. And it wouldn't that be the utopic world of linguistic, not only justice, but liberation, right? Where we would all want to live in which how we language is not necessarily looked at, pointed at, um, determined to be as less than the average, but rather it's just part of the beautiful variety that we all bring into that space. Where we, this is where I sometimes I grab a little bit from what are called liberatory models of um, just in general, like there's a, a researcher whose name is Bobby Harrow, H-A-R-R-O, who did a, a model called the um, cycle of racial socialization and then also the cycle of racial liberation. Yes. Yes, the cycle, the, the, the this race is centered. But in this process, this idea of variability in languaging also must be centered. So when we go to the idea of liberating ourselves, it, it is not a simple space. You got to go in with a vision of, which is not even part of that necessarily. Now I'm quoting from somebody else, but um, from Barbara Love, who came up with a critical liberatory consciousness. But this idea that you come in with a vision of what that liberation would look like. And in that liberatory space, do we do we exercise our minds? Like, can we think about what would that look like in terms of language? What would that look like in terms of disability? What does, it, it must go beyond inclusion, right? It has to go to justice in terms of disability, in terms of disability. And in our field, we haven't even contended with inclusion. <laughs> we're not even there yet. We're, we're barely at rights, if that, except we don't even know the history of disability rights in the United States. So even that, there's so many stories missing to even get to that space. But yeah, translanguaging holds the possibility of a different world for all of us. And the thing is that when you provide the environment. So when the environment is provided to support the person who needs the most support, everybody is supported in the long term. It helps us all. Yeah. My own journey of understanding translanguaging started with a pretty limited focus on how this could benefit service users and their families who speak named languages other than English. And it's clear that, like you say, creating this environment helps everyone, you know, supporting access to whatever form of communication that an autistic individual needs in different circumstances is a neurodiversity affirming practice. And even honoring the fact that I need a range of communication modalities helps my practice. And I'll add, because um, Dr. Sotovoy can also mention this idea of being multimodal in what we do in the therapeutic space. Um, multimodality is part of 
this idea of translanguaging, but it's, it's part of it because we all do it. <laughs> and so to that end, when we think about sometimes multimodality in SLP, we think about it from a very sort of essentialist space, thinking about people who may communicate with an augmentative device. And what I'm what I want to say is one of the biggest things that changed the way that I do co-learning in my classroom spaces was actually reading about and practicing the principles of universal design for learning. Okay. And the UDL as a framework is not perfect. It's not going to solve all the problems of the world, but it inherently um, invites us into a space of imagining that communication can and does happen across more than one modality that you are going to be as a learner, maybe um, more engaged if you're watching a video or if you're listening to a podcast, just for an example, than reading 10 pages of a PDF, okay? If, or that maybe you need the 10 pages of the PDF in addition to the auditory um, presentation of the material. That's engagement, but also it involves representation. And also then in that, in that context, this idea that when we are redefining what language is to us, that we are also decentering that spoken modality, which would then really problematize this idea of non-verbality that we have for certain people, right? And so in that space, how can you, and this is easy to, well, it's easy, but it also kind of takes a little bit of design time, right? Before you come into your intervention room with the five kids that you might have at the other side of the table, let's say, you know, can you think about multiple ways of representing the, doc the information that you're presenting, multiple ways of engaging the learners who are going to be there, and multiple ways in which they can show you that they are understanding and learning. And under that, is this idea also of named languages. It's not that we have to abandon the idea of named languages altogether. I don't think our field will exist if you do, just like I don't feel like our field will exist if we abandon the idea of structural analyses of language, like syntactic analysis or other things. I think that those are gonna be there, but our frames for how we define the people and what the purpose of those analyses is, does need to change. And to that end, I'm going to give you one more thing that every SLP should commit to doing. <laughs> Not to be bossy, but to be bossy. <laughs> Learn within your coalitions. Stretch your hands outside of your siloed discipline. Join, you know, the, the, I am in the most intellectually stimulating moment of my entire 20 plus year career because of the people with who I am engaged in co-learning with. And they're people who are not necessarily SLPs. Yes, we have our collective, Single Secret is in it, Dr. Vishnu Nair, um, Clara Bowler, uh, Leah Fabiano, Chelsea Brevet. I mean, I'm going to forget people, right? Am I forgetting? Who am I forgetting? Betty Yu. Betty yeah, so these are the people with whom we collectively, and there's a number of others, right, that we collectively write for resistance, that we read together, that we learn together. Those are important. And also, I mentioned Clara Bowler. Clara Bowler is a, an educator, a sociolinguist from outside. So, and she's had tremendous influence in how I think about these concepts, right? Every single person I mentioned before this, too, when I talked about anti-Blackness in language, were also people that I learn from 
And similarly, uh, I like to pitch one more person, which is, uh, you know, I went through 20 plus years in a field, never having a mentor who was minoritized, certainly never having a mentor who was Latina, never meeting another Af uh, Dominican, let alone an Afro-Dominican. And I had the joy of meeting Maria Choi Peña. She wrote this amazing book called Mothering Labeled Children. We go back to what Sigrid was very vulnerably talking about when she talked about how she has felt in her bones after her languaging has been judged. And also what Nate was talking about when he talked about, you know, talking with families and sort of how families find themselves in this space of tension um, as they mother their disabled children into whether or not we give up, which, which language do we privilege and how do we give up other ways of languaging because we don't want to harm our own kids, right? And so she wrote this book, but also she has an article that I'll make sure that I, I include in that um, document that will be shared that's called True DL, which includes both translanguaging and universal design for learning with, and it's a really short read. It's pretty applied. It's helpful for all SLPs and teachers and whoever may be listening to this as that. So learning community, learn across the silos and, and read and practice these things, you know, cause it, it's not as simple so as to switching things, uh, you know, from whatever we knew was before to whatever it is now. Thank you for bringing up some of your learning process. It's helpful to know that it is a process, even for someone with advanced degrees and who teaches others that you participate in a learning community and access support from colleagues in and out of our profession in this area. And thank you also for talking about how you bring translanguaging into the teaching you do with speech pathology students. I think it highlights that we can engage translanguaging in all our professional spaces, not just in the therapy room, but in teaching and supervising and research. I've done some starting to do some professional development around translanguaging so I can encourage our fellow SLPs um, from the learnings that I've heard SLPs say to me and my colleagues that have worked on this. So one of the things is to um, do a little bit more digging to understand the differences between code switching and translanguaging because it took me like a year to to really understand the differences. And I think sometimes you're like, yeah, that's code switching. Let's just call it translanguaging. Um, it's not the same. So we got to really dig deep into that. I think the other thing is to uh, be gentle with yourself um, because if you're anything like me, I'm highly impatient and a perfectionist. So when you put those two things together, you create, you know, quite the toxic person. But I mean, I'm getting help y'all so it's gonna be okay but the point is that some of us jump into this idea like i'm gonna do translanguaging i just heard this podcast so i'm an expert now let's get into it i really encourage you to take your time with it to learn to process and to get it wrong um, because i personally don't feel like i've arrived to the destination of really understanding not just translanguaging but what does our world look like when it's linguistically liberated it's really hard to think about it because we are living in a world that is oppressive and it's not liberated so just to remember to that it takes time. And so with that, yes, like moving you to encourage you to apply and learn about translanguaging, but also realize that it's just going to take time. So it's okay to continue to learn and unlearn and improve your practice over time. Thank you, Dr. Sotoboykin. Uh, Dr. Breaspan, 
Do you have any advice that you would give to a speech pathologist who wants to incorporate translanguaging practices, but isn't sure where to begin? So to get to a space where we can actually implement a practice requires that we first reflect and analyze what we have known and done up until now with a critical stance. <laughs> and so that's something that we, we have, with the panic of understanding that what we have done was not, was harmful, right, to people, and knowing that we are all human beings and we don't want to cause harm on people, right, that we have, we understand that there, at least a lot of us are understand that we are in a power imbalance within our fields where we are the therapists, we are seen to have this power in this space where we are hired, put to transform the way somebody communicates, <laughs> to give them, quote unquote, a shot at the right, their human right to communicate. And again, we know what the problematics are there, but I think we, we, we have to first sort of breathe that in. And in breathing that in, kind of pause and think, okay, what do I know? How do I define language? The thing that is the call out box outside of my head, but how, also how do I define that thing that is a call out box outside of my head when it's inside of me? How do I judge myself and my languaging? And that goes for anybody because anybody and everybody, if you've been through schooling, your languaging has been scrutinized one way or another, right? So in that space, that's a space of learning. That discomfort, that unlearning that Dr. Sotoboykin talked about, that is, that is how life is. And so there is vulnerability. What we are saying here today, we might listen to in six months and think, Yikes, I've learned so much from just that. I don't even know exactly what I said about uh, bilingualism at the beginning or even talking about what Nelson Flores and Jonathan Rosa has talked about in the past. But the point is that there is that you have to be willing to be bringing, bringing your vulnerable self into this space. The last piece I'm going to say, which is something I've just started to like very superficially get into now, is that SLPs don't do a lot of language analysis, but they don't know they don't know anything about critical language analysis, which is a whole methodology, by the way. Okay, so if you think about it a little bit, the, the best example that I can give, just because also she's a black woman and she's brought tremendous, um, you know, she's she's a force to be reckoned with when it comes to black languaging. April Baker Bell's approach to linguistic justice is rooted in critical language analysis to some extent, right? And to a great extent. And so again, being able to be in not only not thinking that language is, is a color evasive, apolitical thing, understand that when we say to a family, you should continue speaking your language in the home. What are we really saying to that family? And I get goosebumps here because I am in that space of having been told that I had to assimilate into who I am today. Again, because of proximity to whiteness, also because I pass as white until I open my mouth for many, many years, okay? My, even my tongue has whitened over the course of time being here because I speak English 90% of my time. 
you know, even my husband is is English speaking. But in that space, you know, being able to engage in criticality about language and and think about the power differentials that happen when we use when we use some languages in some spaces, and not assume that if I tell a family go speak your language in the home, that it is solely their responsibility to keep that language going. Right. That is the biggest thing that I would say we can all learn. Before we wrap up our conversation, did you have any additional thoughts you wanted to share? Um, I think that, again, because I work in the policy space, it makes me think a lot about how sometimes speech therapists and other practitioners feel really limited by the policies if they work in a school system or perhaps um, federal mandates related to disability. And I think that not only should we really think about being critical about language use, but also critical about what are laws and policies communicating. And as um, I think about how can we exercise advocacy within our spheres of influence? And I think that looking at policies and looking at federal mandates and wondering and really thinking about what are the assumptions made under these policies and laws and to what extent are they creating more oppression even if they were created with the intent to elevate linguistic equity and inclusion because it's you know we work in a system so it's not just what we do in the therapy room but how policies and laws are created to uh, usually sustain oppression so as a one uh, example in the United States, we have the Individuals with Edu- um, Individuals with Disability Education Act or IDEA, which was a remarkable um, civil rights law passed to encourage or to make sure that children attended of or received a free public education. So that's that's a good thing, if you ask me, you know. But sometimes the way that is written, as it relates to immersion bilinguals. First of all, they're kind of erased completely. So I think that we got to think about policies and laws, like who is it including and who is it excluding? Because that actually tells you a lot about a society and what's valued. So there's that topic. And then the second thing is when it comes to um, bilinguals, all it says is like, make sure that their disability is not due to a difference. So this is idea of like bilingualism as a language uh, difference versus disorders, which is literally all we ever talk about in speech language pathology, it doesn't do much. So what am I supposed to do after I evaluate a kid? You know, which we all know from research, we're not doing the best jobs, right? So like, I think there's just a lot to do um, in our field, not to be overwhelming, but also as a call to action to work, to not only read beyond our discipline, but to work and advocate beyond our, or discipline because it's all interconnected and it all is really important in terms of promoting justice for racialized emergent bilinguals labeled as disabled. And I'll add to that, there's a quote that I cannot remember, maybe one of you knows it. It's something about you keep keep one foot in the system as it is and then another one is sort of envisioning the future. I'm totally butchering it, but that's sort of the the idea behind it. So yes, resistance in in these uh, entrenched systems is so important, which is the work that Dr. Soto Boykin is doing is admirable and it's also exhausting. Um, and we need each other, 
in that space, right? Like there's no way that we can be the same people who are going to be writing a piece against accent modification. And then next week, we're going to also do this piece about the envisioning whatever the world is that we want to head. We can, but also the idea is that we need each other. That is worth us to be, everybody's responsible for the change that we want to see. So with this idea of keeping one foot, which I know is ableist, one space of us, okay, in this space of resistance, you know, including criticality about the, the, the policies that are in place and, and understanding how hard it is to come against that wall, make room for visioning. And in, in terms of language, and I'll go ahead and pitch this because this is a, a dream that is starting to like gain now uh, speed. Many years ago, I had an idea and, and I ended up finding someone else that had a similar idea two years ago of kind of coming together as a coalition, developing a center of liberated languaging. And so that's under works. And we are hoping that even as early as this summer, we're going to be able to offer some conferences that will center on critical language analysis, and also resisting something that we didn't even talk about, racial linguistic ideologies, okay? So this idea of uh, language as a proxy of race um, that we kind of alluded to here and there um, in materials. So keep an eye out for those things. It's going to be the first of many. And the idea or the hope for that space is to really be in community, not just with scholars. Yeah, it's great. But also we're not the ones in the trenches having to deal with a governor who's not allowing us to do certain things within our state, you know, here in the United States that's happening. Um, So sort of finding what are the ways in which we live in those spaces of tension and find what Ophelia Garcia talked about are the cracks in the system. Well, I think many of our listeners will look forward to following you and the work you're doing in this area and seeing how this can help people work within their spheres of influence, as Dr. Sotopoikin referred to, here in Australia. Bueno, Dr. Ebrea Span y Dr. Sotopoikin, muchas gracias por hablar conmigo sobre ese tema y por haber compartido de su tiempo. Les agradezco. Ay, gracias por darnos gracias. tiempo tempranito en la mañana. <laughs> sí, muchas gracias. Con mucho gusto. And to our listeners, thank you for being with us today. Join us again next week for another episode of Speak Up. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Please be sure to subscribe or follow the podcast and share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for listening and bye for now.